Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. First, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who sent photos for our Lenten Collaborative Arts uh, project. Anyone send photos here? Um, there's a one wonderful, beautiful photos that came in. We saw a slideshow of them last week as part of worship. And you'll see when you leave in the lobby an art installation made from a selection of those photos. And they were made, the, the installation was made by McKenna and Peter Dickerson. And I just want to give a shout out to them and a shout out to you and say thank you. Um, and I encourage you to spend some time uh, with the photos. Well, happy Palm Sunday. Um, I hope that you'll join us on Friday as we come together to remember the cross. Um, And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three important moments in the week uh, of Jesus's life leading up to the cross. And I want us to approach these three important moments with two questions. They're on your handout. And the first question is this. How did Jesus's followers and his disciples do when it came to following and worshiping him? Like, how would you rate them? I know it's kind of an odd question, but, but trust me, how would you rate them? And then secondly, what was Jesus's response? What was his response? So I'm going to invite up Amanda, who's going to, um, who's going to do our first reading. Uh, and, and, the, and the passage we're going to read here, the scene is what has been already mentioned, Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus and his disciples are, are coming to the city to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus is riding on a donkey. So go ahead, Amanda. All right, this is Luke 19, 36 to 40. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, All of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. So what is happening here? We see crowds of people gathered to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Never before has there been so much buzz about that man from Nazareth who multiplied loaves and fishes and and healed people and delivered them from demons and even raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. Ever since that happened, Jesus' followers, they were increasing. And and here we see them praising him openly and loudly. And and they're quoting Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I have always loved this moment in Jesus' life. And here's why I think I love it, because he gets... He, he just gets played by the, the Pharisees. He's not understood. He's uh, all kinds of just awful responses to Jesus that he faces. Uh, people don't get him. It seems like they get him. It seems like he's finally being recognized and respected for who he really is. But the question is, is he? So let's dig a little deeper. What else are the crowds doing? They're doing this. And they're putting palm branches down as well on the road for the donkey that Jesus is riding on to ride over, to literally walk over. What's that all about? 
Well, in ancient Israel, this was a way of honoring royalty. This was a way of paying homage to a royal figure. And you can actually read it in 2 Kings 9, back in the Old Testament. A man named Jehu is anointed king, and the people, as soon as he is named king, they immediately take their cloaks off and they put them on the ground before him. You see, the crowds got one thing right about Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. And that was right, but they got something wrong. What they got wrong was what Messiah meant. You see, the Jews were an occupied people. Their land was an occupied land. And for the record, Roman occupation was not pretty. It was harsh. And the people of Jesus' day longed for freedom. They longed for peace. They longed for justice. And they believed that when Messiah came, he would defeat Roman rule in Israel once and for all. And he would become Israel's new ruler and king. And now they'd found him. They'd found Messiah. They'd found the one who would liberate them from the heavy hand of Caesar. And that was why he was entering Jerusalem after all, right? To be crowned king. Do you see the disconnect here? They are misguided. They're misguided in their assumptions about what Jesus is going to do for them. He is going to be their king. But his throne is not going to be a royal throne in a palace. It's going to be a cross. He is going to liberate them from something, but what he's going to liberate them from isn't Caesar. He's going to liberate them from something much greater, sin and death. The death that comes from being alienated from God because of sin. So let's step back from the scene for just a moment and take a look at those questions we started out with. How would you rate the disciples, the followers here, when it comes to how well they're following Jesus, how well they're worshiping him? Would you give them an A plus? Anyone an A plus? Maybe in the B range, B plus, B minus? Let's give them, let's give them a B. So what is Jesus' response here? How does he respond to their imperfect worship, their misguided uh, worship? Does he say, stop, 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 stop. Put your palms down, friends. Take back your coats. You got it all wrong. <laughs> you need to brush up on your theology a little. Why don't you go get that straightened out and polished up and then come back and try again? No, he doesn't do that at all. He completely honors and respects their sacrifice of praise. And he does that by receiving it and even defending it, right? When the Pharisees try to get Jesus to quiet the crowds down, he refuses to rebuke his followers and says, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Well, why is that important for us? Here's why. Because we worship God imperfectly. We always have and on this side of eternity, we always will. You and I, we pray imperfectly. We understand God imperfectly. Our service to him is imperfect. A bunch of us are going to go lend our hands to the city, to the community. We're going to go gardening this afternoon. I'm really excited about that. But you know what? Our service this, this afternoon is going to be imperfect. We're kind of like the crowds, aren't we? You know, we've been captiva captivated by the person of Jesus, uh, and we know that he's more than just a person. He's the son of God. We've tasted of his goodness. And many of us have chosen to follow him with our lives. But let's be real. Sometimes we have a tendency to follow him for the wrong reasons. I just want to personally confess 
that I have often been closest to God over the years when something really hard has been happening in my life, or something's going really badly in my life or maybe the life of someone I love, and I, and I prayed long and hard and got close to God. I wanted something. I needed something, and my hope was that God would be able to do something about it, and that drove me to God. And you know what? That's okay because God works with that. He shows up to us when we show up to him even if we're showing up to him for the wrong reasons. Here's the thing. Jesus accepts you and me as we are. He doesn't actually need our worship to be perfect. He purifies it. And, you know, over time, he will see to it that our false assumptions are corrected. Uh, And when that happens, it can be hard. I mean, the disciples saw that when they saw the person that they thought was going to be installed in the royal palace um, crucified, right? That was a, a harsh a wake-up, a harsh shattering of their false assumptions. But they needed that false assumption to be nailed to the cross. And Jesus wants us to know him and to love him for who he is instead of who he isn't. So he will, in his timing, correct those false assumptions in his way. But meanwhile, he accepts us now with our false assumptions intact. We're going to read another passage, so I'm going to invite up Jeff Bickford, who's going to read this passage. We're going to fast forward in Holy Week to a little later in the week. Jesus has just shared the Passover meal with his 12 closest disciples, his good friends, the Last Supper. And we're going to see that the after-dinner conversation gets a little heated. The passage starts with Jesus speaking. Here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, In this world the kings and great men lorded over their people. Yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my time of trial, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Thank you, Jeff. So the disciples here competing against one another right in front of Jesus, how would you rate the disciples' faithfulness in following Jesus and worshiping him well? Anyone give them an A plus here? B, B minus? What about a C? I'm kind of thinking maybe a D. I mean, it totally embarrasses me to even think about the disciples arguing in front of Jesus about which one of them is going to be greatest in the kingdom. Here's what I think is happening here in this scene. Just like the crowds, the 12 disciples thought Jesus was going to be installed as Israel's new king. And whenever there's a new head of state, there are political appointments 
to be filled, right? Who's going to be Secretary of State? Who's going to be Attorney General? Who's going to run the Department of Agriculture? Who's going to run the Department of Health? Who's going to be Ambassador to the UN? You get the picture, right? Well, in their zeal, the disciples got tangled up in that big, ugly C word, competition. And also in that other big, ugly C word where the competition starts, comparison. And, and look how Jesus responds. Does he give up on them? Does he disqualify them from their inheritance as his disciples? You know, he's not actually surprised by their behavior. He isn't even phased. He patiently teaches them. He talks to them about servants, about being servants, And it's probably at this point where, as described in the Gospel of John, Jesus washed their feet. Jesus showed them that there is a new way to lead, a different way, a kingdom way. And then what does Jesus do? He tells them that they will indeed have a place at his table in the kingdom. Of course, he's talking about a different kind of kingdom than they have been imagining. And yes, they will indeed share in his power, although that power might look a lot more like being a servant than they had realized. And this is good news for us. Because we also get caught up and tangled up in those big, big, ugly C words, don't we? Competition, comparison, even... It's sad to say, even within the body of Christ. I think we can do this in two ways. I think we, sometimes we find ourselves judging all of the people around us, assuming that in some way we're better, we're more spiritual, we have it more together, we've found the right way. Before long, we've managed to convince ourselves that we're the only truly righteous person in the room. On the flip side, We may find ourselves trying to measure up to those we think have it all together around us, those people that we think of, they're more spiritual than we are. They they seem to be more blessed. They seem to be more gifted. Before long, we've convinced ourselves that we don't even deserve to breathe the air in the room. We don't deserve a place at the table. And you know what the worst part of all of that thinking is? It totally distracts us from the main event, and that is Jesus Jesus, who patiently waits for us to take our eyes off ourselves and look to him. And only when we look to him, only when we transfer our attention from ourselves to him, only when we have allowed our fixation on ourselves to be swallowed up in his gaze of love, will we be changed. Friends, this is a hard question, but are we much better than the disciples? I'm not sure we are. But the good news is that if Jesus didn't give up on the disciples, he's not giving up on us. If he had patience with the disciples, he has patience with us. If he washed their feet, then he comes to you, and he washes your feet, and he washes my feet. And then he goes to the cross. He went to the cross for them, and he went to the cross for us. And here, ultimately at the cross, all competition All comparison dies on the spot. At the foot of the cross, you and I and everyone in this room are exactly the same because we have each so desperately missed the mark. And he has atoned for our sins equally. Your sins, 
and mine. Let me invite Amanda and Jeff both to come up for a final reading. Uh, This is a little bit of a a longer reading. Um, This is a reading about Peter. um, And it starts with Jesus addressing Simon Peter. And so I invite Amanda. This is Luke 22, 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. So they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. Peter is zealous for Jesus. He's dedicated. He's ready to go to prison for Jesus. He's ready even to die for him. And then he denies knowing Jesus. He denies knowing Jesus practically to Jesus' face. Can you feel the searing, hot regret as he goes off and he weeps? How would you rate his following Jesus, his worshiping him well? It seems like Peter blew it. I mean, to deny you even know the one that you just said you were ready to die for. I like Peter, but I think he probably gets an F probably gets enough. Let's look at how Jesus responds. Let's, let me ask you a question. How, how, what do you think Peter saw when Jesus turned and looked at him just after Peter had denied him and they locked eyes? Do you think Peter saw anger or condemnation in Jesus's eyes? Do you think Peter saw shock or surprise? Do you think Peter saw disappointment Like Jesus was saying, I I had hoped better things for you, Peter. We don't know. We don't know the nature of Jesus' gaze in that moment. It doesn't say. But we do know that Jesus had prayed fervently for Peter to come through this trial with his faith intact even before it happened. And this was a prayer of compassion for a dear friend. 
compassion that was willing to overlook offenses. And I imagine that that compassion probably came through in Jesus' eyes. And I also imagine that Peter saw love in Jesus' gaze, perfect love, because Jesus is God and God is love. So how could Peter not have seen love in those eyes? Well, if you want to find out what happens next to Peter, come back next week. That's a plug for the Easter service. Uh, But for now, suffice it to say that after the resurrection, Jesus reconciles Peter to himself and renews Peter's call to be a shepherd and a leader. Why is that important for us? Because you and I, friends, we deny Christ too. We worship God on Sundays. Then we go and we do and we say things that displease him. We make God promises that we don't keep. When the social pressure's on, when the cultural pressure's on, we find it more convenient to serve our reputations than to bear witness to Christ. And we neglect his commandments to feed the poor, to welcome the stranger, to pray for our enemy. Like Peter, we fail miserably. Like Peter, we get an F. And then Jesus looks at us and he locks our gaze because he hasn't turned away from us. And what do we see in Jesus' eyes? Do we see anger? Do we see shock? Do we see surprise? Do we see disappointment? No. We see compassion. Jesus looks on you and me with compassion. He sees our frailty. He sees our sin. He sees our ugly hidden flaws. And he refuses to condemn us. Instead, he allows himself to be condemned for us. He goes to the cross. He absorbs all our offenses and the offenses of the world, and he reveals the full extent of the Father's love. Can you hear him whispering in your ear like he whispered into Peter's ear? When you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Strengthen them. Because you see, Jesus doesn't, re- doesn't just receive people who worship him imperfectly. He doesn't just receive us. He uses those people who worship him imperfectly. He uses Peter. He wants to use you and me. And that, that is good news. Well, I'd like to invite up the band. Um, and as we close today, I, I want to say that I think we often get something terribly wrong. I think we tend to think of Jesus as bursting at the seams with grace toward the sinner who repents and begins to follow him, right? But somehow I'm afraid that we fail to believe or we believe that he's less willing to forgive the follower who doesn't follow him well enough, who doesn't believe perfectly, whose theology or eschatology or ecclesiology isn't pristine, who simply doesn't worship or pray or live their faith like they might, But what do we see here in these stories? Do you see Jesus withholding his grace from his disciples? Do you see him rejecting them because of their imperfect worship, hanging his head low with disappointment, ashamed of them, turning away from them? No, just the opposite. Let me ask you, where is your faith today, friends? Is it strong? Is it weak? Is it troubled? Do you look around the room and think everyone else has it together but you? Everyone else is receiving God's blessing but you? 
somehow God is withholding his blessing from you, if we play that comparison game, we will get so fixated on ourselves that we will overlook the living Lord in our midst, our only hope. Christ is in our midst today. His grace receives you. His blood purifies you. Your failures, my failures, including our failure to believe everything correctly, to worship him perfectly, that's nailed to the cross. And Jesus says, come, I receive you. I will never forsake you. I love you. I have good purposes for you. Even when you turn away from me, I will keep turning toward you. I am redeeming you. You are mine. Let's pray. Good and loving and forgiving God. Thank you that scripture records for us the disciples' mess-ups and failures and their bad theology and all their wrong turns. We see in these, we must confess, a reflection of our own. Thank you also that scripture records your gracious way with them, your loving acceptance of them, your refusal to give up on them or turn away from them. You have not left us, though we have often left thee. Forgive us, Father, for when we want something, you can give more than we want you. Thank you that you don't require our motives to be perfect. You purify them. In your grace, in your timing, correct all of our false assumptions so that we may know you as you are. And forgive us for getting tangled up in the big, ugly, C-words competition and comparison. When this happens, turn our eyes, lift our eyes to Jesus. Bring us back to the cross. And thank you for the cross. We stand before the cross undeserving but forgiven broken but being healed. Your perfect self-giving love is life, and we receive it today. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.org.